Welcome to Quantum Magazine Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week, we'll hear about a race to decode the brain's algorithms in order to revolutionize machine learning. Also, the computer program AlphaGo captures elements of human intuition, an advance that could mean big changes for computer science. Reporter Emily Singer spoke with scientists modeling the brain on an unprecedented scale in her story, Mapping the Brain to Build Better Machines. A three-year-old recognizes a live giraffe at the zoo just from having seen a picture of one in a book. Realizing the two are the same thing may seem easy, but it's actually very sophisticated. The drawing in her book is simple. While the living animal has color, texture, movement, and light, it looks different from every angle. Humans are good at this kind of task. We can easily grasp the most important features of an object after seeing only a few examples. We can also apply information from one object to ones we haven't seen before. A computer needs to sort through a whole database of giraffes, in many settings and different perspectives, to learn to recognize the animal. Humans are better than computers at visual identification. We're also better at finding important information in a flood of data, solving unstructured problems, and learning without supervision. Humans are better generalists, said computer scientist and neuroscientist Tai Sing Lee. We're more flexible thinkers. We can anticipate, imagine, and create future events. A new federally funded program called Machine Intelligence from Cortical Networks, or MICRONS, is trying to make artificial intelligence as close to real human intelligence as possible. Three teams of scientists will try to figure out how the brain identifies images. They'll then make machines that do the same. Jacob Vogelstein, who will head the program, says today's machine learning fails where humans excel. He says the project members want to revolutionize machine learning by reverse engineering the algorithms and computations of the brain. Each team will model a chunk of the brain's cerebral cortex in painstaking detail. The teams will also develop algorithms based partly on what they learn. By next summer, each algorithm will be shown an item it's never seen before, and it will need to pick out images of that item from thousands in a database. Christoph Koch is president and chief scientific officer at the Allen Institute for Brain Science. He's working with one of the Microns teams. Koch and other teams are creating a complete wiring diagram of a small cube of brain, smaller than the volume of a poppy seed. That's much, much larger than today's biggest wiring map, which took roughly six years to complete. The researchers will try to map a cubic millimeter of cortex by the end of the five-year project. That tiny portion contains about 100,000 neurons and 3 to 15 million synapses, as well as enough neural wiring to span the width of Manhattan. No one has ever tried to reconstruct a piece of brain at this scale, but smaller-scale efforts have shown that these maps can provide insight into the cortex's inner workings. Wei-Chung Allen Lee, a neuroscientist at Harvard working with Koch's team, mapped a wiring diagram of 50 neurons and more than 1,000 of their partners. The researchers paired this map with information about each neuron's job in the brain, and then they came up with a simple rule for how neurons in this part of the cortex are connected. They found that neurons with similar roles are more likely to connect and make larger connections with each other than with other types of neurons. While the end goal of the Microns project is technological, like data analysis tools for the intelligence community, new and important insights into the brain will have to come first. 
Andreas Tolias, a neuroscientist co-leading Koch's team, compares our current knowledge of the cortex to a blurry photograph. He hopes that the huge scale of the Microns project will help sharpen the image, exposing more of the rules that govern our neural circuits. He said without knowing all the component parts, we may be missing the beauty of the structure. The cerebral cortex is a pizza-sized sheet of tissue three millimeters thick. It's scrunched up to fit in our skulls and makes the folds covering the brain surface. The cortex is made of a series of repeating modules. Each module has about 100,000 neurons arranged in a network of interconnected cells. Evidence suggests that the basic structure of these modules is roughly the same throughout the cortex. However, modules in different brain regions are specialized for specific purposes such as vision, movement, or hearing. Scientists only have a rough sense of what these modules look like and how they act. They've mostly been limited to studying the brain at smaller scales, tens or hundreds of neurons rather than thousands. But new technologies are finally allowing researchers to analyze how cells within a module interact with each other, like how activity in one part of the system might spark or dampen activity in another part. For the first time in history, Vogelstein said we can do more than just guessing at the contents of the modules, and different teams will have different guesses. The researchers will focus on a part of the cortex that processes vision. It's a system that neuroscientists have explored in depth, and computer scientists have long tried to imitate. Vision seems easy, said David Cox, a neuroscientist at Harvard who leads one of the teams, but it's hard to teach computers to do the same thing. Each team is starting with the same basic idea for how vision works, a decades-old theory known as analysis by synthesis. According to analysis by synthesis, the brain makes predictions about what will happen in the immediate future and then reconciles those predictions with what it sees. This approach needs less computation than continuously recreating every moment in time. The brain might do analysis by synthesis in a number of different ways, so each team is exploring a different possibility. Cox's team views the brain as a sort of physics engine that imagines what the world should look like. Tai Sing Lee's team speculates that the brain builds a library of parts, bits and pieces of objects and people, and learns rules for how to put those parts together. Leaves, for example, usually appear on branches. Tolias's group is working on a more data-driven approach. In his version, the brain makes statistical guesses about the world. His team will test hypotheses for how different parts of the circuit learn to communicate. All three teams will monitor the activity of tens of thousands of neurons in a target cube of the brain. They'll then use different methods to create a wiring diagram of those cells. Cox's team, for example, will slice brain tissue into layers thinner than a human hair and analyze each slice. The team will then create a densely packed three-dimensional map that charts millions of neural wires on their intricate path through the cortex. Using the map and activity pattern, each team will try to figure out some basic rules governing the circuit. They'll then program those rules into a simulation and measure how well the simulation matches a real brain. Tolias already has a taste of what this type of approach can accomplish. He and his collaborators map the connections between 11,000 pairs of neurons, uncovering five new types of neurons in the process. Koch said, we don't have a complete list of the aspects that make up the cortex, like what the cells look like or how they're connected, but that's what Tolias's study started to do. Among these thousands of neuronal connections, Tolias's team uncovered three general rules that govern how the cells are connected. First, some neurons pretty much talk mainly to neurons of their own kind. Second, others avoid their own kind, communicating mostly with other varieties. 
and third, some talk exclusively to only a few other neurons. Using these three wiring rules, the researchers could simulate the circuit pretty accurately. Tolia said the challenge now is to figure out what those three behaviors would look like in an algorithm. Brain-like artificial intelligence isn't a new idea. So-called neural networks, which mimic the basic structure of the brain, were extremely popular in the 1980s. But at the time, the field didn't have the computing power and training data that the algorithms needed to become really effective. Neural networks have come a long way, like in voice and face recognition programs. And AlphaGo, the computer that recently defeated the world's top player of the ancient board game Go. But the rules that artificial neural networks use to change their connections are almost certainly different than the ones used by the brain. Contemporary neural networks are based on what we knew about the brain in the 1960s, said Terry Sanowski, a computational neuroscientist who helped develop early neural network algorithms. Sanowski said our knowledge of how the brain is organized is exploding. Today's neural networks contain a feed-forward structure, where information flows from input to output through a series of layers. Each layer is trained to recognize certain features, like an eye or a whisker. That analysis is then fed forward, with each following layer performing increasingly complex computations on the data. In this way, the program eventually recognizes a series of colored pixels as a cat. But the feed-forward structure leaves out an important part of the biological system: feedback. In the real brain, neurons in one layer of the cortex are connected to their neighbors and to neurons in the layers above and below them, creating an intricate network of loops. Sanowski said feedback connections are an incredibly important part of the cortical networks, and that there are as many feedback connections as feed-forward connections. Neuroscientists don't exactly understand what these feedback loops are doing, but they do know they're important to our ability to direct our attention. They help us listen to a voice on the phone while tuning out distracting city sounds, for example. Part of the appeal of the analysis by synthesis theory is that it provides a reason for all those repeating connections. They help the brain compare its predictions with reality. Micron's researchers are trying to decipher the rules governing feedback loops, like which cells these loops connect with and what triggers their activity. Then they'll translate those rules into an algorithm. Tyson Lee said that what machines lack now is imagination and introspection. He believes feedback circuitry allows us to imagine and reflect at many different levels. Perhaps feedback circuitry will one day give machines traits we think of as uniquely human. Sanowski said using feedback circuitry in a deep network would allow you to go from a network that has a kind of knee-jerk reaction to one that's more reflective, one that can start thinking about inputs and testing hypotheses. The Micron's project is high risk. The technologies that researchers need for large-scale mapping of neural activity and wiring exist, but no one has applied them at this scale before. One challenge will be dealing with the huge amounts of data the research produces—one to two petabytes of data per millimeter cube of brain. One petabyte is about five times the size of Apple Music's entire song catalog. The teams will probably need to develop new machine learning tools to analyze all that data. A rather ironic feedback loop of its own. 
It's also unclear whether the lessons learned from a small chunk of the brain will be revealing of the brain's larger talents. Sanowski said the brain isn't just a piece of cortex; it's hundreds of systems specialized for different functions. The cortex is made up of repeating units that look roughly the same, but other parts of the brain might act quite differently. The reinforcement learning used in the AlphaGo algorithm, for example, is related to processes that take place in a part of the brain called the basal ganglia. Sanowski said, "If you want artificial intelligence that goes beyond simple pattern recognition, you're going to need a lot of different parts. If the project succeeds, it will do more than analyze intelligence data. A successful algorithm will reveal important truths about how the brain makes sense of the world. In particular, it will help confirm that the brain does operate by analysis by synthesis. It will reveal a key ingredient in the recipe of consciousness is a constantly changing combination of imagination and perception." Tyson Lee said, "It is imagination that allows us to predict future events and use them to guide our actions. By building machines that think, these researchers hope to reveal the secrets of thought itself." Columnist Michael Nielsen explores what makes Google's computer program AlphaGo so special. In his piece, is AlphaGo really such a big deal? In 1997, IBM's Deep Blue system defeated the world chess champion. At the time, the victory was widely described as a milestone in artificial intelligence. But Deep Blue's technology turned out to be useful for chess and not much else. Computer science did not undergo revolution. Will AlphaGo, the Go playing system that recently defeated one of the strongest Go players in history, be any different? Nielsen believes the answer is yes, but not for the reasons you may have heard. Many articles present expert testimony that Go is harder than chess, making this victory more impressive. Or they say we didn't expect computers to win at Go for another ten years, so this is a bigger breakthrough. Some articles offer the observation that there are more potential positions in Go than in chess, but they don't explain why this should cause more difficulty for computers than for humans. In other words, these arguments don't address the core question: Will the technical advances that led to AlphaGo's success have broader implications? To answer this question, we need to understand how the advances that led to AlphaGo are different than those that led to Deep Blue, and how are they more important? In chess, beginning players are taught to think of a chess piece's value. In one system, a knight or bishop is worth three pawns. A rook, which has greater range of movement, is worth five pawns, and the queen, which has the greatest range of all, is worth nine pawns. A king has infinite value, since losing it means losing the game. You can use these values to judge potential moves. Give up a bishop to take your opponent's rook—that's usually a good idea. Give up a knight and a bishop in exchange for a rook—not such a good idea. The idea of value is crucial in computer chess. Most computer chess programs search through millions or billions of combinations of moves and countermoves. The program is looking for a sequence of moves that maximizes the final value of the program's board position, no matter what sequence of moves is played by the opponent. Early chess programs weighed board positions using simple ideas like one bishop equals three pawns, but later programs used more detailed chess knowledge. Deep Blue, for example, combined more than eight thousand different factors in the function it used to judge board positions. 
Deep Blue didn't just say that one rook equals five pawns. If a player's own pawn is ahead of her rook, it restricts the rook's movement, making the rook a little less valuable. But if the pawn can move out of the rook's way by capturing an enemy pawn, Deep Blue doesn't reduce the rook's value as much. Ideas like this depend on detailed knowledge of chess and were crucial to Deep Blue's success. Ultimately, the Deep Blue developers used two main ideas. The first was to build a function that used lots of detailed chess knowledge to judge any given board position. The second was to use lots of computing power to weigh lots of possible positions. Then, Deep Blue could pick the move that would force the best possible final board position. What happens if you apply this strategy to Go? It turns out that you will run into a difficult problem when you try. The problem lies in figuring out how to weigh board positions. Top Go players use a lot of intuition in judging how good a particular board position is. They will, for instance, make vague sounding statements about a board position having good shape, and it's not very clear how to express this intuition in simple, well-defined systems like the worth of chess pieces. Now you might think it's just a question of working hard and coming up with a good way of weighing board positions, but even after decades of attempts to do this using the usual approaches, there was still no obvious way to apply the chess search strategy to Go. This began to change in 2006 with Monte Carlo tree search algorithms. These were a new approach based on a clever way of randomly simulating games, but Go programs still fell far short of human players' inability. It seemed as though a strong, intuitive sense of board position was essential to success. What's new and important about AlphaGo is that its developers have figured out a way of bottling something much like that intuitive sense. To explain how it works, here's a description of the AlphaGo system as outlined in the paper the AlphaGo team published in January. To start, AlphaGo took 150,000 games played by good human players and used an artificial neural network to find patterns in those games. In particular, it learned to predict with high probability what move a human player would take in any given position. AlphaGo's designers then improved the neural network by playing it against earlier versions of itself. They then adjusted the network so it gradually improved its chance of winning. How does this neural network, known as the policy network, learn to predict good moves? Generally speaking, a neural network is a very complicated mathematical model, with millions of parameters that can be adjusted to change the model's behavior. When the network learned, it means the computer kept making tiny changes to the model, trying to find a way to make tiny improvements in its play. In the first stage of learning, the network tried to increase the likelihood of making the same move as the human players. In the second stage, it tried to increase the likelihood of winning a game in self-play. This sounds like a crazy strategy, repeatedly making tiny tweaks to some hugely complicated function, but if you do this for long enough, the network gets pretty good. And here's the strange thing, it gets good for reasons no one really understands, since the improvements are a result of billions of tiny tweaks made automatically. After these two training stages, the policy network could play a decent game of Go, at the same level as a human amateur, but it was still a long way from professional quality. In a sense, it was a way of playing Go without searching through future plays and judging the value of the resulting positions. To improve beyond the amateur level, AlphaGo needed a way of judging the value of those positions.
To get over this hurdle, the developer's core idea was for AlphaGo to play the policy network against itself to get an idea of how likely a board position was to be a winning one. That likelihood of a win provided a rough value of the position. Then, AlphaGo combined this value with a search through many possible plays. It then picked the move that forced the highest effective board value. We can see from this that AlphaGo didn't start out with a system based on lots of detailed knowledge of Go, like Deep Blue did for chess. Instead, AlphaGo analyzed thousands of prior games and engaged in a lot of self-play. Then it created a policy network through billions of tiny adjustments, each intended to make just a tiny improvement. That, in turn, helped AlphaGo build a system that reflects a good Go player's intuition about the value of different board positions. In this way, AlphaGo is much more radical than Deep Blue. Since the earliest days of computing, computers have been used to search out ways of improving known functions. Deep Blue's approach was just that. It aimed at improving a function whose form, while complex, mostly expressed existing chess knowledge. Deep Blue was clever about how it did this search, but it wasn't that different from many programs written in the 1960s. AlphaGo also uses this, although it's somewhat more clever about how it does the search. But what is new and unusual is the prior stage, where it uses a neural network to learn a function that captures some sense of good board position. It was by combining those two stages that AlphaGo could play at such a high level. The ability to recreate intuitive pattern recognition is a big deal. It's also part of a broader trend. The same group that built AlphaGo built a neural network that learned to play 49 classic video games, often reaching a level that human experts couldn't match. By contrast, DeepMind's neural network simply explored lots of ways of playing. To start, it was terrible, flailing around wildly like any human just learning to play chess. But sometimes, the network would do clever things by chance. It learned to recognize good patterns of play, patterns leading to higher scores, in a manner similar to how AlphaGo learned good board position. And when that happened, the network would reinforce the behavior, gradually improving its ability to play. This ability of neural networks to bottle intuition and pattern recognition is being used in other contexts. In 2015, researchers described a way for a neural network to learn artistic styles and then apply those styles to other images. The idea was very simple. The network was exposed to large numbers of images and gained an ability to recognize images with similar styles. It could then apply that style information to new images. For example, it could transfer the style of Vincent van Gogh to a photograph of the Eiffel Tower. It's not great art, but it's still a remarkable example of using a neural network to capture an intuition and apply it elsewhere. Over the past few years, neural networks have been used to capture intuition and recognize patterns in many areas. Many of the projects using these networks have been visual, like recognizing artistic style or developing good video game strategy. But there are also striking examples of networks simulating intuition in very different areas, like audio and natural language. Because of this versatility, AlphaGo can be seen not as a revolutionary breakthrough in itself, but as the leading edge of a very important development. That development is the ability to build systems that can capture intuition and learn to recognize patterns. Computer scientists have tried to do this for decades, without making much progress, but now the success of neural networks has the potential to greatly expand the range of problems computers can attack. 
It's tempting at this point to cheer and declare that general artificial intelligence must be just a few years away. Suppose you divide up ways of thinking into logical thought, which we already know computers are good at, and intuition. If AlphaGo and similar systems prove that computers can now simulate intuition, it seems as though all bases are covered. Computers can now perform both logic and intuition. Surely general artificial intelligence must be just around the corner. But there's a problem here. We've labeled many different mental activities as intuition. Just because neural networks can capture some specific types of intuition doesn't mean they can do as good of a job with other types. Maybe neural networks won't be as good at some tasks we currently think of as needing intuition. Our existing understanding of neural networks is actually very poor in important ways. For example, a 2014 paper describes certain adversarial examples which can be used to fool neural networks. The authors began their work with a neural network that was very good at recognizing images. It seemed like a classic triumph of using neural networks to capture pattern recognition ability. But what they showed is that it's possible to fool the network by changing images in tiny ways. Another limitation of existing systems is that they often require many human examples to learn from. AlphaGo learned from 150,000 human games. That's a lot of games. By contrast, humans can learn a great deal from far fewer games. Networks that recognize and manipulate images are usually trained on millions of example images. And so, an important challenge is to make the systems better at learning from smaller, human-supplied datasets, and with less extra information. Systems like AlphaGo are really exciting. We have learned to use computer systems to reproduce at least some forms of human intuition. Now, we've got so many wonderful challenges ahead. Might we soon learn to capture some of the intuitive judgment that goes into writing mathematical proofs, or into writing stories or good explanations? It's a tremendously promising time for artificial intelligence. You're listening to Quantum Magazine Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Karen Shikurji. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.